Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Badass Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Fox. I'm going to start today's episode by answering a question that's been asked by a few listeners. How do I go about choosing podcast guests? I'm usually contacted by either an author's publicist or the author themselves. I have a form that folks can fill out that gives me contact information, a little bit about the author, why they're interested in being a guest and what they can bring to my listeners, where they are in their writing journey, stuff like that. Sometimes if it's a publisher reaching out, they'll have a press kit, which answers many of those things. So the form isn't always necessary. So yeah, I either get a form or a publisher or publicist will email me to inquire. I'll take a peek at the author's website, their books, their socials, that type of thing. If I think they're a good fit for the show, and 99% of the time they are, I'll reach out with a potential date and time for an interview. This is typically many months out, so you might have heard me talk about that on the podcast before. So for example, it's December 23rd today, and I'm already booked up until September. So those interviews won't air until October. It is crazy how much interest there is in the podcast, and I am so, so grateful for all the guests who have come on to share their knowledge and expertise and insights and cool stories. And I'm also so grateful for my listeners because without you, there would be no podcast. So again, thank you. And I know I've said that many times here before, but I'll keep saying it because I'm so honored that you decide to share an hour or so of your day with me once or twice a week. Anyway, so that's the usual selection process. Other times I have reached out to an author's publicist to see about getting them on the show or to the author themselves, Um, or I'll reach out to an agent or acquisitions editor to have them do like an interview or a QA and a or ask agent session. Speaking of which, I have some really fun ones coming up in 2023 that I cannot wait to share with y'all. And stay tuned after today's interview because I have some super exciting news to share about an event in January that I'm offering. I really like this new segment that I've added to the show because it makes me set aside time to learn cool things about books and authors and the publishing world. Sometimes I stumble upon something that totally surprises me, like today's topic, the life and stories of author Norman MacLean, who died in 1902 on this day in literary history. Scottish-American author Norman MacLean was born in 1902, and what caught my eye when I was researching a topic for this segment today was the title, A River Runs Through It and Other Stories. Curious, I clicked on the title and realized that this was a book before it was adapted for the screen. This was a movie that I loved in my younger years, directed by Robert Redford and starring Brad Pitt, Tom Skerritt, and Craig Sheffer. Now, it came out in 1992, so unfortunately, McLean never got to see the transformation from book to film because he died in 1990, but he did spend the last years of his life assisting in adapting the book into the screenplay. McLean wrote this semi-autobiographical story and published it along with two other stories in 1976, and it was the first fiction book published by the University of Chicago Press, where he was a professor in the Department of English. He was of the strong opinion that New York City mainstream publishers were, quote, systematically cheating writers from middle America, end quote. Interesting. He was rejected by the publisher Alfred A. Knopf, which was acquired by Random House in 1960, And after McLean published through the University of Chicago Press, a senior editor contacted him to essentially offer him a deal on his next book, to which McLean replied, and I quote, If it should come to pass that the world comes to a place when Alfred A. Knopf is the only publishing company left, and I am the only author, then that will be the end of the world of books. End quote. This, of course, was taken from Wikipedia. Isn't that interesting? Norman was one of two sons and five daughters. His father, the Reverend John Norman McLean, passed his love for fly fishing onto his sons, which you see a lot of in the book and movie. 
The author credits his father for teaching him the rhythm in language as his father would read aloud to his children every single day. When the family moved to Montana in 1909, the surroundings and experiences there influenced McLean's writing. Some of the people who influenced his writing were the poet Robert Frost, who taught creative writing classes at the prestigious Dartmouth College, where McLean served as editor-in-chief of their humor magazine called Dartmouth Jack-O-Lantern. While he was at Dartmouth, McLean also gained an admiration for Ernest Hemingway's style of writing. The tragic life event that inspired A River Runs Through It was the murder of his younger brother, Paul, who was an investigative journalist and who got himself into all kinds of trouble with gambling debts, alcohol, and women. In 1937, he was beaten so badly in Chicago on the street that he succumbed to his wounds. The police at the time chalked it up to nothing more than a mugging gone bad, but it was said that it was potentially due to being in debt to the wrong people in Chicago. No arrests were ever made, and the case was never officially solved. Paul put up a good fight, though, as the M.E. stated that nearly every bone in his hand was broken. The murder had a profoundly negative impact on their father, who seemed to age very quickly after that. What a terrible thing for a parent to lose a child, and in such an awful way. It clearly impacted Norman as well, since he wrote an entire story on it. Some say the story was the best they'd ever read, and that it stayed with readers long after the story was over, and is just as beautiful as anything Hemingway ever wrote. Have you ever read the book or watched the movie? What did you think about it? It certainly sparked an interest for me in reading the book now that I know it exists, and of course I want to watch the movie again now. Montana is a beautiful state that I've visited a couple of times, but I don't see myself heading back there anytime soon, so it would be nice to at least see it again on the big screen. This brings up an interesting topic that probably crosses almost all writers' minds at one time or another. That is, the topic of adapting books to movies or series. Another contender for today's Lit History segment was Sue Grafton, whose book Tea for Trespass was on the New York Times best-selling list during this week in 2007. She wrote the Alphabet Mystery series and finished all but one. She never finished writing Z is for Zero because she died in 2017. She is one author who never wanted her books to be turned into movies and expressed this to her children before she died. She made them promise they would never do it. And she said she would, quote, haunt them from the grave if they ever sold film rights of her novels, end quote. Grafton had spent 15 years working in the screenwriting industry, and when she tired of it, she turned back to writing, which turned out to be very successful for her. But how interesting that she didn't want to see any of them on the screen. Many writers don't want their stories to be changed, and I respect that. I've talked with authors who have been disappointed in the ultimate transformation to the point where they barely recognize their own story. I can definitely see how this would be frustrating and disheartening. On the other hand, though, I've talked to authors who have loved this process. To have another creative take your story and put their own spin on it, which would never have been possible if your story didn't exist. That can be a really exciting process. What are your thoughts on this, writers? I personally would love to see my future books turned into movies or series, and I say that knowing full well that the stories themselves could change substantially, but the difference is that I created the book. I didn't create the screenplay, nor do I ever plan to, because I'm not familiar with screenplays and I'm not sure if that's something that interests me. But if I can write a book that inspires someone to transform it to the screen, I think that would be pretty spectacular. I'd love to hear what you think. Reach out on Twitter at underscore badass writers or on the contact form on my website at kathleenfox.com. And that's with two X's. You can also find me on Instagram at badasswriters underscore podcast. And now on to today's guest. Today's guest is author Mark Tedesco. He is a writer and educator residing in both California and Italy. He enjoys weaving stories, connecting the present to the past, and exploring longings expressed in relationships, events, culture, and history. 
Mark has written in the genres of travel, historical fiction, memoir, self-help, and children's fiction, and he's had several titles published. Mark's newest Dixie Books title, Stories from Puglia, Two Californians in Southern Italy, will be published in January 2023. Besides writing, Mark is an educator, and he loves to engage his students in his love of history, literature, and culture. Mark likes to travel in his off time, searching for stories that make life just a little more fascinating. So welcome to the show, Mark, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. So can we start with just kind of a little summary of the book that was published last November in 2021, Lessons and Beliefs? Well, you know, Lessons and Beliefs is a follow-up to, well, my first book was called Undeniable Longing. And when I wrote that book, I spent some time in a Vatican seminary. And I wrote that book to sort of make sense of my time there with the idea that nobody would ever want to read this because the experiences are so unique. And when it was published, I was surprised at how many people reached out to me saying how they could relate to it. Maybe not the situations of being in a seminary, but some of the issues that I struggled with. And the follow-up book, um, Lessons and Beliefs, was delving into the world of relationships. And I was in various relationships. Some worked out, some didn't work out. And I decided to step back and reflect on, were there any common themes that I was bringing into relationships or any beliefs I was bringing in that were maybe either helping the relationship or were an obstacle to it? And I started pursuing the the theme in the book about uh, what is healthy love and what is unhealthy love. So even though my history of relationships was in the gay world, Dixie published it, and so many people have reached out to me telling me that they could relate to it because, again, the universal themes that are in the book, like uh, what is a healthy searching for love? Um, What are the signs of a good relationship and the signs of a negative relationship? What is codependency? What is love as fulfillment and love as emptying oneself and making the other person my my focus and losing the focus on myself? So it sort of takes the, the reader on a journey through the initial um, interest in looking at another as one's point of reference or fulfillment, and journeying through that are um, what are the the healthy or unhealthy manifestations that fill that need that we all have. So basically, long story short, and it's constructed of stories. So this happened. And this was the insight that I got from it. So these were the beliefs that I went into a relationship with. Let's see how they played out. And these are the lessons learned. So that's basically the book. I mean, I'm not surprised that people reached out because those are universal themes. Those are things that we all kind of experience in one way or another. So yeah, that's great that you had people that reached out to you. You kind of touched on where the inspiration came for the story. What was the thing that kind of spurred you on to turn it into a book? Well, I knew that I'd been through a lot of experiences in the world of relationships, but I wasn't sure what I learned from each one. I was sort of just going from relationship to relationship. Some lasted longer, some shorter. And I thought if I could, if I could sort of plot it out and reflect on it, there, there's one saying that I that comes up in the book about if I if I um, don't learn uh, one of life lessons, I'm destined to repeat it. And in relationships, I think that's especially true that I keep duplicating the same relationship over and over again with different people, unless I learn a lesson uh, moving forward. So that was what was spurring me initially was um, let's see um, if I could derive some of the lessons. The second one was so many times we learn from our mistakes. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could give some of the insights that I've gained in the relationship world? So maybe somebody doesn't have to go through some of the similar things, like the belief that we have that um, this time, I know how this person is, but this time it's going to be different because there's me. (laughs) Whereas in reality, you know, the surest sign of future behavior are past patterns. And it took me a few relationships to to realize that. There's also a relationship um, with somebody I was with, with an addiction. And a number of people reached out to me that they've been in relation with people who either had addiction to to drink or, or other things. 
and how I managed to navigate through that and come out on the other side a healthier person. So I think it started out as my own need to make sense of experiences, but secondly, um, to try to give insight to others who were navigating similar situations. There are so many experiences that people have, and I think the instinct is to to keep it to yourself. And I don't want anyone to know what I've been through and, and that kind of thing. But we're starting to see now, nowadays, people are starting to talk about things more. And I think that's really important because that helps, like you say, it, it helps other people learn. You know, sometimes people have to go through things themselves, but to get some insight from other people, I think is super, super helpful and, and important. And it's important to talk about these things and to know that whatever you're going through, somebody else is going through it as well. And so it just kind of helps helps you feel not so alone, I guess, in some things. Yeah, you're right. And I think, mm -hmm. at least in my experience, the times I believe that, oh, this, this experience I've had is so unique or so shameful that nobody out there would understand it. But if I can take the shame away, I've been shocked at how many people go through similar things that we think that only I'm going through in this world or, or similar mistakes that, that I've made that other people uh, can relate to. And once you remove the shame, it empowers you because then I can I can navigate my life and I can make choices, but the shame really stops me in my tracks. So I wanted to tear away that and say, okay, my life is an open book. This is what I've learned and see if it is relevant to you or not. You do have to take that shame out of it. And there's all kinds of different situations, but realize that there is something that you can learn from it and move forward from it. Can we get an idea of what to expect in Stories from Puglia? Yes, uh, Stories from Puglia. And Puglia is a region of Italy shaped like a cowboy boot. So it's the heel of the boot that's all the way down. And through a series of unforeseen events, beginning with a friendship, myself and my partner um, ended up, well, we lived there part of the, basically about half of the year there and half the year in California. So Puglia is a land of stories, and the book attempts to paint a picture of this culture, people, and geography through stories that happen in different places. And some of the stories are from the past, like there's a story of um, Nicholas, you know, the, the St. Nicholas of Christmas lore, whose remains, whose tomb, who's actually buried in Bari, one of the major cities in Puglia. So how did that happen? So the book transports the reader back at the time of this Nicholas to try to understand who, who was the man behind the myths. I do a lot of research on my books. So I'm not just making things up. I'm just trying to tie facts together in a logical way. So that book, to give some background on, on Bari, we, we go back in time in history and we live at the time of this, this Nicholas to figure out what type of a person he was and how his remains ended up in that city. But there's also contemporary stories, some of which are sort of funny, about, okay, these two Californians, and we come with our own culture and mentality. And sometimes we're sort of in a collision course with the culture and mentality of Southern Italy. So there's a story of when our Italian friends, um, in Southern Italy, if a friend invites you out to dinner, in our mind, we think it's going to be three or four of us. So we get to the table, it's like 22 of us around the table by the time eight o'clock rolls around. So it's a story of a, a true story of an invitation to eat at a farmhouse called a Masseria. There was going to be four of us and ended up a large group. And we had just arrived in Italy um, a day or two before. And we weren't that aware yet of the mentality there of extended meals. So my partner and I kept getting up thinking the meal was over. So, you know, after about an hour and a half, we were eating and there was a pause and we got up, so let's take a walk. And um, while they're settling the bill, so we took a walk outside and came back about 15 minutes later and we were surprised that they were serving meals of food again. So this happened over and over again. And so it it struck us as, well, first of all, we were we were dying from fatigue because of jet lag, but also it was funny because we kept thinking that the meal was going to be terminated. But there was also a, another series of events that some of our Italians asked us to say things in English, and some of it got mistranslated. Somebody took, took offense. 
So during the whole meal, there was this interplay of cultures back and forth. But in the very end of even the contemporary stories, there's always an insight. And our insight at the end of that meal was, okay, the meal did take like four and a half hours. And there was um, some misunderstandings that happened. And, but our realization was that the focus on community is so important there on building relationships. So at one point, we looked on the table and we saw our friends, seven or eight of our friends who see each other every day in these animated conversations that were lasting 20, 25 minutes. I remember turning to my partner and say, what on earth could they be talking about? And they see each other every day. But again, it took a while for us to realize that it's, it's, it's a community, it's, share, it's sharing your life together. The food is secondary. It's just a way to, to be together, to build those relationships. So the book tells stories both from the past and the future to give a glimpse into a culture and history that I can learn from today to better my life, that I can extend my the horizons of my worldview and to be less judgmental of cultural differences and instead be more accepting and even willing to see the positive points in that in, in this that I, I may be missing. So in my mentality as a Californian, it's a mentality of, hey, you, know, you want to go grab a bite? And they don't say grab a bite in Italy. You know, it's not like that. It's it's uh, eating together is more of a sacred moment. So there's a positivity there for me to learn if I can stop the, being judgmental and just be present and be inside of the situation. So it's, it's basically uh, 12 different places. 12 different situations um, that bring the reader along with us to, to give an, um, an immersion into a different world, past and present. So when they come out the other side, they're going to see that it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible land with a unique uh, perspective on life and a unique culture that's um, beckoning to be explored. That's wonderful. And I love that you kind of gave us an idea of, of what one of the stories is. And I can't imagine eating constantly for four days. Hours. But I love the fact that it is more, it's less about the food. The food kind of gives you not an excuse to get together, but but a reason to get together. And that it's more about the community and, and interacting with each other. I love that. Um, and I love that you're you're kind of taking your own experiences and things, historical things, to kind of give the reader an understanding about that and focus on the positives of that that culture and the society and, and, the, and the people and, and the different ways that they do things and gaining an appreciation for how they do things and really understanding what the culture is about. I think if it could suspend judgment, then it can enrich us. Once I was sitting in a coffee shop in Rome and uh, with a friend of mine and the, the American couple walked in, they looked well-traveled, but they looked well-dressed and they went up to the coffee guy, the barista, and um, she said, I like a coffee in English. And he said, cafe, um, he, he spoke very broken English. Uh, he's asked what type of coffee because Italy, you have cappuccino, you have espresso, you have number. And she said in a louder voice, a coffee. And then he said, uh, you want American coffee or you want cafe, uh, uh, cappuccino? And then she said in a really loud voice, I want a normal coffee. <laughs> and my friend looked at me and, and rolled his eyes and said, normal. So that's, sometimes we can bring our cultural perspective in and think that my way is, is the only way. But then if, when you travel, and that's why Rick Steve says travel because it teaches you so much, um, I can see that there's a lot of valid ways to do the same thing that are neither good, bad, true, or false. They're just different ways depending on different mentality. I can learn if I don't judge. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree 100% about traveling and, and kind of broadening your horizons and all types of different things. I love traveling. I just don't get to do it as often as I would like. But I really, really like immersing myself in, you know, the heart of, of the country and experiencing how things actually work there. You're talking with the people, you're you know, going to a coffee, a coffee shop and yeah. um, and going to the places that the locals go to and yeah. and experiencing life as it actually is, not not so much on a resort. 
Exactly. Yeah. I think that's how travel can change us. Yeah. We're willing to take that risk and step out. Yeah, absolutely. Like we mentioned in your bio, you've written in several different areas. A lot seems to be focused on history and travel. Um, and then you weave some deeper themes in there. And you're also a high school history teacher. So I think that your love of these things kind of supply like an endless amount of, of story inspiration. So what seems to be the area or time period or, or topic that you draw on the most for your ideas? And how do you then weave in those deeper themes? Like what, I guess, what comes first for you? That's a really good question. First, being a high school teacher helps because I always have to ask myself, teaching history, social studies, how am I going to get a 16-year-old interested in this? Why would a 16-year-old be interested in how people lived in the Middle Ages or who King Henry VIII was? Um, so that, that question that I always have to ask is, what is the interesting aspect of this has helped me as a writer approach a period of time, history, or something in the same way? I think for me, it's the story that matters. And I'll give you an example. I would use this for with my kids, with my students. Um, and when we studied the Roman Empire, in the middle of the Roman Forum, there's a, there's a big rock. It's just a rock sitting there. And if I don't know anything about the rock, I walk by it and it's boring. It's just a rock. But on that rock, when Julius Caesar was, was stabbed 28 times, and the senators thought that by eliminating him, all the people would rally because they didn't like the dictator. And instead what happened, the people of Rome loved Julius Caesar. And so many showed up for his funeral that um, they built a funeral pyre that was four stories high on top of that rock. It was right there. And then they lift the body up and then they had the funeral and, and Mark Anthony was there and he found Julius Caesar's will and they, he read the will while the people in Rome were, were weeping because they were so sad because they loved Julius Caesar because what he did for them. So that rock is full of meaning and full of stories, and that's what history is. And for me, um, I like the ancient world. I like uh, ancient Rome because I, I lived there for eight years. And also I like Greece and um, Egypt. Um, somehow that world comes to life for me and maybe it's because I have a big imagination and when I visit Rome I often go to, go to the forum and I lean over especially at night and you can see the the central road the Via Sacra there with the ruins along the side and I imagine that I can hear the voices of senators walking by or visitors walking by or or slaves or people going in and out of temples and it somehow seems real to me. Or another thing I do is I'll step, I'll stand where an emperor may have stood or touch a stone wondering 2000 years ago, who was touching this column that I'm touching right now? Trying to bring it to life for my students and letting the stones speak to me and being interested in the ancient world um, has given fruit to a couple of uh, uh, historical novels that I've produced. I love that. I am exactly the same way. I, I There are lots of, um, I guess, ancestral stories and, and places that we came from. I mean, we all came from somewhere, but I haven't been to those places. And that is the first thing that I think of is, wow, to be able to stand in the same place, the same building, touch the same, you know, if the floor is the same or sit in the church pews or, or whatever the case is. It's just, it's so fascinating. And I, I love that aspect. And even I spent some time in Brazil 20 years ago or so. And um, it was, you know, I, I, I'm not a religious person, but I did go to church. I was there over Easter. And so that was where everybody was going. And so we all went and just, you know, this church was, oh, I don't even know, like 250 years old or something like that. It, brings something into you that is it's just I, I don't even have words for it like it, it's just a feeling that you can experience that you're in this same place and I, I love that about history so how do you go from idea to draft to published what's your process that's another really good question. <laughs> <laughs> to me the, the story has to come from me um has to come to me I could never like 
write for a TV series or be, be a, write for some outfit that's telling me what to write or even for some publisher that says, we want a book on this. I can't write that way. It has to be something that strikes me. I'll give you an example. Um, some years ago, I was in Athens and with a friend of mine, we were there for uh, three or four days. And the first night we decided to walk up to the Acropolis on the hill at night to see the Parthenon. And on the way up at the bottom of the hill, there was this dog, this black sort of Labrador dog, just happy little dog sort of met us there and then followed us up the hill and then disappeared. And then the next night we decided to do the same thing. And the same dog was there and led us up. And then um, we concluded that must be a stray dog living on the Acropolis. So I started to wonder, I wonder what life would look like through the eyes of that dog. And that was the, the spark that ignited uh, a book, it's called The Dog on the Acropolis. And so it was an encounter, a real meeting, uh, that idea came to me. It has to start out like that. Um, something has to happen to inspire the story. Then two, I have to sit down and actually do it. And that book was, the way it works for me is a lot of times I'm, I'm writing the book inside of my head before I can get it down on paper. And going from zero to something is the hardest part. Going from something to refining it is the easy part. In that book, I just couldn't get myself to do it. So what I did was, arrived at school every day, half an hour early, even if I only wrote a few sentences and forced myself to carve out that rough draft. So my second step after that would be um, to, uh, if it's a historical novel, to do the research. What happened was when I actually sat down to write the book, the way the book started to evolving in my head wasn't so much seeing life through the dog and then like hearing a dog's voice talk to you it was more like what was happening around that dog. So the dog's name was Draco, who lived in the present day and who befriended a family who had a shop near that area. But every time Draco fell asleep, the reader is transported to ancient Greece when the Parthenon was first being built, where there was another dog, one of Draco's predecessors named Daria, who was living on that spot. So when Draco falls asleep, we're transported back and we see the events, drama, and people circulating around Daria. Then all of a sudden Draco wakes up and we're back in the present. So it's sort of two parallel stories, one historical fiction in the past, one in the present. And a lot of it's about how animals, especially dogs, can transform the people's lives around them. But secondly, it's about history. It brings a lot of the history of the Parthenon, hopefully, to life. And at the end of the story, the, the two parallel lives of the dogs and the families, they converge in a way that I'm not going to give away. <laughs> so that's basically how it goes for me, that, that something, something strikes me. As I do the research, the story starts to fill in. I write it down. And one of the things I do. I, I was talking with a fellow writer um, when I was in Italy this summer who was telling me that they have trouble getting something written because they're so self-critical. And she was explaining her process to me that writing a piece, reading it, writing a piece, reading it. So we had this long conversation. And what I told her what works for me is I will never reread my rough draft until the whole book is finished. I will never look back because... I'm very self-critical. So I will only look at it when the entire piece is done and then I'm ready to start editing it. Second, this person was also telling me that maybe they could take more classes to learn more technique. To me, I'm the Van Gogh of my own writing. I mean, Van Gogh broke all the rules. You know, he didn't, you know, nobody was gobbing paint on like he was doing. He produced art for himself. Yeah, he wanted to sell it also, but he wasn't measuring the market to try to figure out what the market wanted and then producing that need. He was expressing something within himself. So the second thing is, to me, if I would talk to a writer, you got to write for yourself. You can't write for a market. Because a lasting story that will endure time is not market-specific. If it is market-specific, it's going to be forgotten, like 
I don't know, like the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, you know, um, they were great at the time, but who thinks about them anymore? So that's the second point to remember. And so those are some of the, the basic methods or, or steps that I take. So, so sometimes my idea might be popular at the time or might be discovered later, but I think it's important that I put a piece of myself out there and have market considerations come afterwards, depending on what type of writer that you want to be. Because I'm the type of writer that I want to, I want to feel like I left my mark, that I did something that I can look back and feel proud of, that I did that. Not necessarily that I, I was a bestseller, which would be fantastic. One other thing I wanted to say also is that some of the best stories were written really bad in a bad way. And the important thing is the story. I remember that um, some years ago, I decided to read the what, the Sound of Music book that, that the play and the movie was based on. And I read, thought, wow, this is written really badly because it, it goes off on a lot of tangents, but it has the kernel of, of a really great story. And some of the classic um, novels, uh, I'm not, not going to name them because I don't want to open myself to criticism, but some of the classic no novels are, are not written well. There, there's a lot of tangents and it goes in a lot of directions, but the kernel is a great story. So in the end, the important thing is more the story than the technique. And anyone who's attentive will see a great story, even if my technique might need some improvement. But if I could tell a great story, that's the, that's the most important thing. You brought up a couple of things that I, I kind of make note of. Not looking at your work until it's done. I am so guilty of that. <laughs> like, I, I kind of think, well, I can't get back into it until I read what's there. And then I'm like, oh, I should fix this. Oh, I should fix that. But you're right. Get the story out. And I, I say this all the time, and I just need to follow the advice more. <laughs> get the story out. And then when you're done, that is where all the magic happens. Because, you know, if you if you take the time to correct yourself, yes, you're being critical of yourself, but also you're kind of losing that forward momentum and you might lose a piece of the story that might be in your head. But if you if you don't get it out there, then you might lose it. And then also writing what you want instead of writing to the market, because you're right. It, it's it might be something that's popular now. It might not be popular until 10 years from now. And that really doesn't matter writing what you want to write I think when you're doing that you're putting everything you are into that story you're putting your passion into it and I think I said before that writers can tell when you when you have put that passion into it versus you're trying to force yourself into a market or you're trying to force something out to please somebody else there, there's a difference in the writing I think for sure yeah, and it also depends what, what your purpose is. You know, as a writer, do I want to say something important about life through my characters? Or do I want to just try to make, you know, a, a bunch of money and be forgotten in a year or two? Um, right. So, you know, and the second one may work for some people that, mm -hmm. just to, to, to make it my There's people out there who will do that, you know, sort of write with templates. Um, but that's not what I'm looking for. So that, mm -hmm. that doesn't work for me. But exploring aspects of life through my characters that's what's interesting to me yeah and then how do you how do you approach publishing well that's a really good question too so my experience with publishing is i i've worked with three publishing houses i've had, i have three publishing houses that publish my books and also i've done self-publishing so i've been both I've done both. Now, each story is individual. So what I'm going to tell you is only the way that it, this has worked out for me, but I know that it's way different from other authors. So for me, the self-publishing has been sort of a, a dead end as far as trying to sell books. What, the advantage is I get to be my own editor. I get I, I have total control. And then I get to publish uh, at the time that I want. And also, if I'm publishing hard copies, People can go to places like Barnes and Noble and bookstores and order them. On the downside, the promotion is is all on all on me. So whatever I can do, and there's a lot of predators out there trying to sell you promotional packages that don't do very much. So it's it's hard to get yourself known when you self-publish. Now we all heard stories of the self-published author who sold you know millions of copies when their book came out and made it to a movie. And there are those stories out there. 
that has not been my experience and those are more the exception than the rule. So I would say I always self-publish as a last resort. That's the first thing. The second thing is I've worked with a mid-sized publisher and smaller publishers. Um, let me talk about literary agent. Even though I have seven books published, I cannot get a literary agent interested in me. So I sort of years ago gave up on, on literary agents. I think they're very market attuned. There, there are certain genres that are that are really popular, but that's that are not within my my interest or experience area. So literary agent, I've, I've tried, and some years ago, I just said, I'm just going to do this on my own and not waste time on this. Now, the, the downside of not having a literary agent is that the bigger publishers, HarperCollins, others, won't even look at you, and you have to be represented by a, by a literary agent. So now I'm working with, um, I've worked with Chicago Review, which is a mid-sized publisher. They published my first book, um, but publishers tend to change ownership and hands. And so I, I lost my relationship with the individual people inside because they sold it to someone else and changed it. I have one book with them, but I haven't continued with them. And then now I work with a publishing, uh, publisher in England, Dixie Books, and what I like about Dixie Books, they're a smaller level publisher. They do quality work and they're very aggressive about selling rights of a book to a different countries. So I wrote a book on Rome called She Seduced Me, A Love Affair with Rome, which that is also a fun historical and personal book. And that so far has been um, translated and published in, let's see, Serbian, Portuguese, and now it's coming out in Italian. So Dixie is, is a smaller publisher but they're very aggressive in international rights. So I'm happy working working with them. Because it's a it's a UK-based publisher, if a writer is gonna go in that direction, you gotta be aware of distribution obstacles. So for example, um, Barnes & Noble doesn't handle this, uh, a lot of UK distributors. So my book on Rome cannot be purchased through Barnes & Noble, it has to be online or, or through other other outlets so that is um, the, the distribution is 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 a challenge they said that they're they're working on that but it's sort of a, a, a long process so when you go uk on the one hand it's like oh it feels prestigious i have a british publisher how great is that and it, and it's cool and, and it it's closer relationships with european markets and translations of your book but the challenge is okay distribution in the, in the u.s for it to for the book to become available on Amazon usually takes six or seven months before it's out in, in um, different countries. So that's basically my, my experience is, is mixed. Um, Self-publishing has certain advantages, gratifications, um, the, the control um, disadvantage is that it's really hard to sell um, when you're doing that. And people tend to not want to review self-published books. And with the medium and um, smaller publishers, it works around relationships. If you can establish a relationship with a publisher like I have with Dixie, they always want to see first what I have coming out. And if they're interested, they'll they'll take it. And then they do some marketing. But with a midsize and um, smaller publisher, you have to do a lot of the promotion yourself. you got to be out there on social media, which I don't like doing, but you have to. So I had to, you know, do Facebook and Instagram and um, LinkedIn and the, the whole bit, Mastodon now and Twitter. And you you just have to be out there all the time to try to incite interest in your book and get some reviews. So that gives sort of an overview to answer your question. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you certainly got, you've, you've gained a lot of insight because you've had those different experiences. Um, yeah. The marketing thing seems to be <laughs> almost across the board. It's the the least favorite thing um, for, for authors to do. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to is if you, if you want your books to sell that you gotta, you have to be present somewhere because people are interested in knowing, you know, they'll read the book and they're like, Ooh, who's this person that wrote this book and had all these ideas and everything. And people are interested to, to know the author or have some kind of connection with them, you know, whether that's being able to ask them a question or, you know, seeing what they're up to. So I think it just kind of adds a, a, a personal level to it. But yeah, a lot of people just, they don't like that part of it. And I think what it comes down to when you're making a decision on, on how to publish is 
you really have to look at the pros and cons of every option that's out there so that you can make an educated decision about what's going to work best for you in your situation. You know, there's there's tons of different places to get your book published and there's there's different avenues that you can take to do that. But one way is not the right way or the wrong way. It's just what works for one person. But you can't know that unless you do the research or, you know, listen to what others have experienced. So it's great. Um, you know, that's a question that I ask pretty much all of my authors on the podcast because I think it's so important to get that insight and the different experiences out there so that people who are listening can use that to help them make their decisions. There's no way around the fact that you have to send out tons of query letters. I sent out yeah. hundreds of query letters before I found the right publisher for, for example, the book on Rome and the one coming out on Puglia. I mean, I, you have to create a template letter. You have to read up a little bit about the company. So you're targeting uh, what they might be interested in. And I wish there was a shortcut, but there's no way around that. That's yeah. the only way is to, is to try to get that direct contact. I will tell you one marketing strategy unexpectedly that, that's working for me lately for book promotion, and it's not direct book promotion. So a friend of mine said, you know, why don't you write a blog? And I never wanted to write a blog before because I find blogs sort of not that interesting, but he said that the fact that we are living in California part-time in Italy, what if you write, wrote a blog and how you're pulling that off? Like, what are some mm -hmm. of the things that you're encountering? How is that working out for you? Is it what you expected? What about the cultural differences? And how does shopping work there? And uh, what about renting? So I took him up on his idea, which is sort of like a challenge, and wrote a blog post. Now I've written about 20. I try to get out one, one a week now. And... It's basically, the title is always, that, how do we pull it off to live in Italy? But it's something, there's a subtitle, cultural differences or holidays in Italy, holidays compared to California and Italy. Um, um, how does uh, transportation work there? And I've been shocked at the interest. I mean, I, I put it out on social media when I do it. And I can tell on the website, you know, when you have a blog post, you can tell how many people are clicking on it. And I have the, the blog section on my webpage, which is linked, of course, to my books in the hope that, you know, they'll go on the blog. Oh, he's an author, too. Boom. And maybe order something. So I noticed that when I put a new blog out, I try to do that on Sundays, that on Sunday, Monday and Tuesday, the book sales shot, shoot up. Oh, good. So there seems to be a direct relation. So that's something that's working. You know, we're all experts on something. It could be mm -hmm. a blog post for somebody on my writing process or um, how I'm building something or what I'm learning about being a teacher, something that maybe is not directly related to what I'm writing, but might be interesting to some people. And then they're going to see links to your writing on your website. So that's something that unexpectedly is working for me. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I love, I love hearing stories like that. So yeah. how, how did you pull it off? That's a broad question, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. I think probably two answers. The first one is we realize we don't have to have it all figured out at the beginning, but we could actually take it step by step. And we came to that realization, it was like we could take a sigh of relief because we were trying to have it all figured out. Okay, should we go there? Should we go there full time? Should we be residents? Should we get our um, visa to be able to stay there? Should we buy the car? Should we buy a house? And it was also unclear that it, the whole idea was so oppressive because we couldn't figure it out. So then we realized, okay, why don't we just take it step by step and go over there for three months and try it and then see what it might reveal. And that's been the best method that we're using so far because we have some friends there. I've, I've visited Italy enough and, and lived over there that we have some local friends who are sort of our, our emotional connection to, to Puglia. And through them, we uh, were renting the house that a friend of ours renovated there. It's weird because I don't know how to explain this, but it seems like every time we had to reach a decision, the right answer was sort of presented itself just at the right moment. So that's how it's sort of been. You know, we were wondering how would the internet work? How would the car work? And we've found solutions at the right moment um, to all those. So we're pulling it off, I guess, through sort of trusting that 
if this is meant to be, it's gonna be, it's gonna keep working out. And so far it is. And second, I think um, how we're pulling it off is the realization of what really matters in the end for us is relationships. Through the whole process, it just became clear to us that we have friends in Puglia. If I think of traveling, it's the human encounters that I remember, the people I we've had conversations with, the unexpected meetings that we had. So once we understood that, okay, we're going to prioritize our relationships, the choice to be in Puglia became really easy. Those three things are, are making it flow easily. So we're happy with the things that are working out and we are pulling it off um, so far. And the interesting thing also about being over there is when you put yourself in a situation like that, where we're sort of taking a risk, we're sort of putting ourselves out there. This is a dream. We're going to see if it's going to work out. And you meet other people, expats or people who are sort of living similar adventures who want a bigger life than the nine to five. And we're living overseas who have created a life for themselves. I mean, really interesting people who are just going for it. So I'm grateful for the experience because so far, so far, so good. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I mean, if you're writing, you can do that from anywhere. I mean, Italy has got to be beautiful. That's always been on my list. Haven't been there yet, but it's, you know, one day, it's one of my one day places. Um, And I love the fact that you're documenting everything in a blog because it's, you know, it's it's not just interesting for, for other people, but, you know, sometime in the future, you might come back and think, oh, yeah, I remember that. And it's almost like looking at like a photo album when you when you grow up and you look at your old photo album, right? And you have all these memories come up. Um, so that's awesome. Do you ever bring your love of writing into the classroom? And if so, do your students, do you think they ever get inspired by your stories and your books? Well, I will never say the word essay in my classroom. <laughs> That's the end of it. (laughs) What I do is I get them to write basically the equivalent of essay, but it's never an essay. So, for example, when we studied uh, World War One, I don't like tests. I've never liked tests even as a kid. So I give my kids a lot of projects to do. So we focus on the sinking of the Lusitania during World War One, which is a much more interesting story than the sinking of the Titanic. And so the the project for that was um, that they uh, write a three-part outline for a screenplay on the sinking of the Lusitania. What happened beforehand? There's some passengers received a mysterious telegram that we still don't know where it came from, warning them to not get on the ship. What happened on the ship itself and the explosions? And then what happened afterwards to try to investigate um, what happened? So... They, they, uh, I taught them how to write a screenplay, and then they wrote the three points each section of, of the outline of what their movie might look like. We watched some clips of the Titanic. So instead of saying, we're going to write an essay about the cause of World War One, I, I try to go about it like that, or the U.S. Constitution, instead of, you know, so we make a Constitution cube. So the Constitution cube is actually a, a template of a big cube made out of paper, and on all the sides of the cube, there's certain things that they had to research and write with the picture and color it. And then we hang the cubes from the ceiling in the classroom. So also uh, they'll do a poster. Each piece of writing has to have a, a, an art component to it. I, wanna, I want them to visualize um, what they're writing. And also I wanna respect the fact that students have different ways of expressing themselves in different ways that their brains function. A lot of our students are, are more visual thinkers. So if I'm talking at a class, just like I'm doing now, um, I would lose them in, in a minute. But if I'm showing them pictures that we're getting out of our seats, they'll come and look over here. They get it more what we're trying to what we're trying to learn. So I get them to write a lot. They they do a lot of writing, but you would never call it an essay. Uh, another project I, I've done for World War One is a letter from the trenches that we're going to pretend that we're a soldier stuck in the trench, and we're going to cover these points. You're going to explain, um, I'm so in home, um, what you're doing in this trench, what type of weapons were being um, used, what was going on in this year. So they're actually writing the same content that they might in in an essay on World War One, but they're creating a, a letter form, and the kids like to 
like to dip their their letters and their the paper in tea to make it look old or burn the edges of it and hand it in um so that's what i that's what i try to do with, with the kids um is show them that writing can be creative and fun and expressive and not something just oh damn another essay you know i, I would never say the word essay and sometimes with standardized testing we have to do stuff like that but mm -hmm. i always tell them this isn't me guys you know uh i would do it a different way but we got to do this today and then we'll go back to the fun stuff oh yeah. i love that I, I i wish my teachers would have done that <laughs> it just makes it more interesting and almost maybe sometimes you know they're not even realizing that they're getting all of this learning in because it's it's fun, right? Not just being creative about the writing. I, I think that's awesome. But being creative about the learning. I think if you add that kind of spunky creativity aspect to it, then they're going to be more, I guess, receptive to learning all of these things that might be boring in a different way if it was taught in a different way, right? And so what are you working on next in terms of writing? Well, I um, two things. One, well, the blog that we already talked about, I'm thinking of, there's so much interest in it. I'm wondering if the blog could be a, eventually become a really rough draft for how to pull it off to live, live in Italy or how we pulled it off. It would have to be reworked because it's a blog form, but it have to be put into chapters. P some people have written to me say that there's a lot of good information in the blog and they read different things, but not everything in one place, like everything from healthcare to finding a car. So that's one thing I'm, I'm kicking around. That's an idea. The book I'm writing right now, I just finished a chapter on, on Barcelona and it is, I usually don't talk about my books before they're written. I'm sort of superstitious that way. It's about half done though. Well, the working title is Onward, My Life on a Sailboat. And it's a fictional character using real experiences of someone who's exploring life through the analogy of visiting different places on a sailboat and the different experiences this protagonist has that eventually change him. So it's, it's everything from friendship and, and Amalfi to sex and Santorini to God in the south of France. So it's a different geographical area where the char character encounters certain experiences that make him reflect on life and maybe expand his horizons. So I'm using some of my and other um, travel and history experiences to try to bring that uh, that type of life together and the way that started was just traveling all, along the coast in Italy this summer I started to think I remember telling my partner wow I just loved if, if I could live on a sailboat <laughs> that type of life of just pulling up anchor and so I'm just going to go live on in that country and base my boat over there for a couple months and then I'm, I'm going to do the and his response was, oh, I would hate that. It's too nomadic for me. But I thought, okay, maybe I can't do that, but maybe my protagonist could live that life. And so that's how that's, that book is sort of starting right now. So a what if. So, I mean, so many stories are based on, you know, the, the idea is sparked from what if, what if this yeah. were to happen? That's That's great. Uh, so my last question for you today is what is your advice to writers in terms of weaving together stories of the past and of the present? It's a really good question. I'm going to repeat um, what I said. One thing I said before is always write for yourself, not for the market. That's the way that you're going to produce something of quality that will be lasting. And as far as um, writing from the past, I have a big imagination so what I do is I imagine myself in that atmosphere, in that place in the past. The way it works for me is if I'm inspired to write about some aspect of the past, like the dog in the Acropolis, I wrote about two Roman soldiers called um, I Am John, I Am Paul. And the little snippets of, of history that you find in my book on Rome and in Puglia, the way it works for me is I... I start to do the research of an area that I'm interested in. 
like when the one on Rome, there's uh, the golden house of Nero who built a house for himself that was mile long. And when I start to do the research at a certain point, it always happens that I start to see in my imagination, the situations playing out. And that's how the book writes itself for me. It doesn't write itself in words. It writes itself in images. I'll see Nero in a room and interacting with other people or the two soldiers, John and Paul, I would, I would always picture the next chapter of the book would start to play out and I would see it. And then I'd sort of write it down the best that I can. So I'm inspired more by images than by words. So my advice to, to new writers would be to write for yourself, to don't skip over the research. The research is what brings authenticity and a lot of times the, the story to life. And the third thing is um, with historical fiction, what we have is a series of facts like a puzzle and there's, a there's about half the puzzle that's missing, but you have some of the puzzle um, pieces there and to produce a quality piece, you have to fill in the invisible spaces by keeping everything in its proper place. So I don't, if I see historical fiction that is not accurate or that's too heavily interpreted by an author, I lose interest in it. Um, it's, it I feel like it's, this isn't worth my time. But if someone is taking like, has three facts and to make the three facts fit together in a logical way. Okay. It probably happened like this and this and, and fill in those spaces and fill in, create likely scenarios. Then it's, um, it's fascinating to me. Like I remember when I read memoirs of Cleopatra by Margaret George, who I love as an author, that's what she did in that book with, uh, with Cleopatra that, okay, we don't have a lot of material. We have some, but what was the likely scenario that filled this in and what could have been misinterpreted by some Roman historians who are trying to make her look bad? Let's pull that out and look at, create a more um, accurate picture of her. So I think that's what quality writing is. It's being faithful to history, seeing how the events speak to you, doing your research and seeing what jumps out at you as far as uh, imaginary scenarios that can make sense of, of the pieces that you do have writing by seeing it in your head that's exactly what i do and i was just i was just talking to someone about this too about how someone found it fascinating that someone can write a story without envisioning what's going on like for me i can't understand how someone's brain would operate that way but for them they can't understand how it would operate for someone who who does see all of that imagery so when i'm writing i see it in my head and i'm trying to get down on the paper what i'm that's just how it works for me. And I've known people like that too. I don't get it either. How yeah. inspired by words and not by images, you know, but yeah, it, it is a different brain function. But mm -hmm. I think my opinion is there's an advantage with being an, uh, a visual thinker like me and you are to, to picture that because then the reader can eventually see what we're seeing. And that makes up for any deficiencies in the writing, I think. Awesome. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time out today. This has been a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I want to let you know about something super exciting that I have coming up next month. In case you missed my tweets and Instagram posts about it, or haven't yet signed up for my newsletter, I've been considering starting to offer some webinars on things like querying, editing tips, maybe some areas of writing as well. So I've put together my first one, and it will be on Thursday, January 28th at 8pm Eastern Time. All the details are at foxeditorial.com slash webinars dash and dash workshops. And remember again that Fox has two X's. The registration link goes live on December 30th and there's a 10 second form you can fill out to get a reminder email for when it goes live. I'll be covering 15 common errors in query packages and how to avoid them. So this will be a slide presentation. You won't be on camera so you can wear your PJs or you can be having the absolute worst hair day in the history of humanity and no one will be the wiser. There will be a Q&A afterward as well. And if you can't make it that day, you can still register and then you'll receive the recording afterward. If there are questions that we don't have time to get to, I'll answer them on Instagram that weekend. 
I see hundreds of queries and synopses throughout the year from many, many clients, and I would like to show the errors in omissions that I see most frequently. And following that, I will point out how to get those things right. I'll also show you how to write a query and a synopsis from start to finish, including all the necessary elements that will have agents and publishers dying to read your pages. So there will be lots of tips and tricks, how-tos, and a giveaway. So one lucky person who registers will win a free query and synopsis critique following the event. So I'm super excited for that, and I'm in the process of planning out my webinars for the rest of the year. I would love to hear what you'd be interested in learning. You can contact me on the website I just mentioned if there are topics that you would love me to cover in future webinars. Sign up for my newsletter there as well, which will give you writing and editing tips and tricks, a recap on the previous month's podcast episodes, my editing availability, resources, upcoming webinars, book recommendations, etc. For those of you who are celebrating Christmas, have a very Merry Christmas. I hope you enjoy spending it with family and friends. Thanks again for listening, and until next Tuesday, keep being badass.